Hi everyone, welcome back to Sustainability Speaks. We are your hosts, Stasia and Saskia. Today we are going to talk about the David Attenborough documentary. I don't know if you've watched it, but if you haven't, then you really should go and give it a watch. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about it, but he basically just looks back on his life and his career and talks about how the planet has changed from when he was a boy. Um, if you want to know a bit more and you don't have time to watch the documentary, then there is a blog post that was written by Stasia um, on our website, so take a look at that. Yeah, I mean, what very much stood out to me in the documentary was, and this is something I mentioned in the blog post briefly, and we'll elaborate on it um, in this podcast, is the link between human innovation and the destruction of the world and obviously all the habitats. Because, you know, human innovation and especially, you know, technological innovation is very, very much um, prided, which obviously, don't get me wrong, it absolutely should be. But I think out of, you know, the human nature, which is very, very selfish, it's taken us up until now to very much realise the genuine consequences that it's having, which, you know, are very... They're not pretty. No, not all. But also... well we we have become more intelligent as the years have come along and because of social media and those sort of platforms we can see the um, damage we're doing which is also one of the main points that david made was about how about the whales in was it japan or did china i think it was all over to be honest i think russia was involved at some point as well well in whale poaching yeah yeah about how people didn't really care until they knew it happened then when they did know it stopped um i mean i don't think it has fully stopped actually i think it does occur still um, but obviously nowhere near on the scale it did occur on and um, he also made a point about joining Instagram recently about how strong social media is how powerful it is um, but to say that to say how powerful it is we still don't know a lot about our environment or we just maybe don't know a lot about it but don't speak a lot about it and I think one of the things in the documentary that I thought was quite scary actually was um, how he spoke about extinction and in the past we had five extinctions in the last four billion years which sounds a lot doesn't it yeah no for sure like sounds like a a lot a lot of years Mm. considering we're 20 we can't can't even fathom how many years that is but um it's actually really not that many years and um the third extinction was actually the worst of the extinctions and this destroyed 95 percent of um the life life at the time and you know if we were to have a sixth extinction even in our lifetime or not in our lifetime this would have a devastating impact i mean it probably it would wipe us all out yeah definitely and i think also like previously all of the extinctions you know the life on earth didn't contribute to the acceleration and the exacerbation of the circumstances because it's not like you know dinosaurs were driving around in cars and polluting everything or you know consuming large <laughs> large amounts of you know like farmed beef Whereas us as humans, that is exactly what we're doing. So we're very much accelerating, you know, us heading towards another extinction. Yeah, that's a very good point. And um, Mm -hmm. there was a paleontologist in the 90s who actually said this point. He was called Richard Lakey. Um, And I presume at the time, um, everyone disagreed with him and they thought, oh no, why would we have another extinction? Like because i think humans they really overestimate themselves don't we and we really think that we are the only thing on the world that matters and we don't realize that there's so much more outside of our bubble and that actually extinction can happen and we can't control it yeah of course and also i think if you think back like 1960s 
religion had such a like a much stronger grip of people's opinions especially in comparison to now like in the western world so i'm sure people would be like no because the bible you know yeah of course i never Mm. even thought about that point um because science i mean science is only recent in the past what 50 years Mm. science has become um like a driving force of our thoughts yeah but also what very much stood out to me and you know kind of going back in time um is what david attenborough said that in his lifetime which he's uh, 94 and it can be rounded up to 100 so essentially in 100 years the temperature of the earth has risen by one degree celsius and although that may seem like completely insignificant it very much is because the effects that it have has has had a so are so major and one thing that then i link this to because as we previously mentioned both of us study environmental law and one of the things we re- we recently read about was the paris agreement which is um built upon the like the UN convention initiative and it started in 2015 and the major bit in the agreement which you know is relevant to this topic is article 2 and essentially it's an agreement between the parties who have signed up to it that they want to prevent the temperature of the earth from continuing to rise and potentially try and decrease it but then basically the whole argument is whether um, the agreement is legally binding yeah so and then this is very much spoken about um in the second part of the article and i quote that it will be implemented to reflect equity and the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in the light of different national circumstances so basically what it's saying is that depending on the national circumstances of the parties they may be exempt from actually you know fully contributing to the objective which is to lower the temperature and that is very interesting to me because of course countries who you know are perhaps less financially and technologically developed fine they can contribute less but then who's there to pick up the slack obviously it's implying that the progressive more progressive countries should do that but is that obligation fair and is it also, you know, realistic to expect um, the more progressive countries to do so? Yeah, um, I think it's fair because we, the, the larger and more progressive countries, like such as even such as England, you know, the UK, China, America, we are the big contributing factors to climate change, and we can't blame a small small country for their minimal minimal impact. So I think it really is fair that we pick up the slack. But that being said, we just wouldn't, would we? Yeah, of course. And also, bearing in mind that this is a very recent agreement, and it's also because, like, to just emphasize how recent it is, in 2020, this is the um, first time that it's been that five year period that, that parties need to submit their national determined contribution reports. And they're still in the process of coming out now. So that's why I don't really want to touch upon it because, you know, it's still, it hasn't been finalized. But, you know, it's very recent. And the fact that climate change is such a pressing issue, it very much, I believe, you know, that there should be like legal obligations and like international legal obligations. But, you know, that is something of, um, I guess, a bit of a utopian perspective, which isn't just the reality. No, not at all. I mean, speaking of reality, 
one of the big factors that humans have um, caused is the change in the amount of poultry in the world, the ch um, change in chickens. So in 1960, there was an average of one chicken for 400 people, which is, I think, is a very normal amount, very reasonable, um, what, what the ecosystem has. And now, um, I'm not sure what year the statistics actually taken from, but now there's 30 chickens per one person. And I'm not very good at maths, but that is a whole lot more chickens than what we had before. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and the fact is, it's not the amount of chickens in the world that is necessarily the issue. I mean, that is an issue. And um, the fact that we need so many chickens is a complete different podcast about overeating meat and that. Um, but one of the main contributors to the environment is the fact that the, the food needed to feed the chickens um, contributes to three main greenhouse gases, which is carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide and um, chickens actually produce 9% of global emissions into the atmosphere. Yeah, that's an insane statistic, to be honest, because there are whole countries which contribute less. You know, they'll contribute 0.03% to um, the overall greenhouse gases. So the fact that, you know, just the chicken farming... One, uh, one animal. Yeah, produces that much. It's um, very crazy to think about. Yeah, it really is. And I think one of the reasons for this is the trend um, towards eating white meat instead of red meat. And a few years ago, I can't really remember when, because I was quite young at the time, there was um, quite a big health campaign against eating red meat. And there was also um, an environmental campaign against eating red meat. It was seen that eating white meat was a healthier and better choice. Yeah, well, also on... A brighter note, and this is something that was once again highlighted in the, the documentary, was um, the initiative in Morocco, which is currently generating 40% of its energy domestically. So essentially what it is, is that Morocco has the world's largest solar energy project, which um, an estimate of its cost is $9 billion. And the reason Morocco is obviously able to do this is because uh, in the desert, the country receives 3,600 hours of sunlight. And the Moroccan Agency of Solar Energy, which is a public-private venture, um, they were established to lead the project, which um, was commissioned in 2015, and then the entire project was completed in 2020, so this year. So speaking about like the motivations behind the project, which is something I found very interesting, uh, is obviously... Morocco wanted to establish a sustainable energy source, but it didn't really have, you know, the environment um, in mind when it did it. And it more had the anthropocentric point of view, which is basically the fact that we value the environment because it's be because it benefits us and not necessarily for its intrinsic worth. And previously, Morocco spent three billion dollars a year on imports of fossil fuels and the demand for those was growing um, six and a half percent annually which is quite a lot um but even though the motivations weren't necessarily to you know save the environment you know even the fact that it's still happening in my opinion that's a positive outcome yeah definitely i mean in an ideal world it would have the environment in um in mind when it did it but the fact that it didn't doesn't take away from the good that it is doing yeah and also i looked at pictures of the power plant and i would highly recommend you do as well um, it's called Noor, which actually means light in Arabic, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, that's nice. And it's definitely a very impressive site because it just has massive mirrors for a 
1.4 million square feet and it's rather mesmerizing because the mirrors are also taller than like people it's very very big um and i thought that's really cool and i think the takeaway message from this is that it's very possible for countries to rely on renewable on renewable energy since morocco uh, previously relied on imported fossil fuels by uh, 97% but now it's essentially relying on nearly half well I mean 40% that's quite a lot on uh, its own sustainable domestic energy and interestingly enough as well the power plant as I said it's in it's in a desert and there's one of the poorest and least developed settlements that resides there and what I found very fascinating is the fact that it's created a lot of new jobs for the individuals, which is a very positive outcome because in the interviews that I watched, the locals said that A, they're able to remain local instead of, you know, leaving their families and having to commute and travel to work or move away. And obviously, especially in the culture in the country, like living close to your family is very important. So it's very beneficial. And also the jobs that, you know, the plant is creating they're sustainable because I think that the reliance on you know sustainable energy and the production the market is only going to grow yeah, it's definitely the future yeah yeah so it's definitely something very very positive and also this is something again mentioned in the documentary that the solar energy export you know that could be the future of 2050 bearing in mind that Morocco is already currently planning on you know exporting energy to Africa and also Morocco is you know the tip of the continent which is very close to gibraltar so obviously that will be a direct route um, of the solar energy into europe which will obviously be very positive yeah that's a really positive note to end on as well a bit like the um david documentary actually a bit of a true facts throughout and then a nice positive ending yeah well thank you very much for listening and i do hope that you know this has cultivated some thoughts and maybe you know has encouraged you and inspired you to go not only watch the documentary but you know maybe do some research of your own um and yeah we really appreciate you listening and see you next week see you next week